There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. Hello, and welcome back to the One Haas podcast, The Crossroads series, where we discuss the critical moments that shape the lives and careers of Haas alumni. I'm your host, Sophie Hoyt, and on today's show, we'll be talking to Alan Locke, He started his career as an officer in the Royal Navy, but after a sudden partial loss of his eyesight, he was discharged. But in time, he realized he needed to redirect his ambitions. And you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna set myself a series of goals that are gonna be so enormous that it's gonna really take my mind off the situation. I just won't have time to you know, sit at home and, and sort of consider what could have been and feel sorry for myself and, and all, the, all those sort of dangerous feelings, I guess, of sort of bitter bitterness and frustration. I said, I'll. I'll try and channel those towards something more positive. So he set out on four major challenges. I wanted to to row across the Atlantic Ocean, to ski across Antarctica at the South Pole, to swim across the English Channel. And as a runner, I wanted to do this uh, big race in the Sahara Desert, which is called the Marathon de Sable, which is 151 miles. He wanted to complete these challenges even before he lost his eyesight. But after going through such drastic changes, these challenges became so much more than ideas. They became goals, full of momentum and newfound purpose. I wrote this down one there and I thought, chance I'm never going to be able to do this. And I've got no idea how you even start, but I want, I need to have a goal that's going to be something I can, I can focus on. And that's, that's what I realized was sort of missing. And that's when I believe Alan became the elephant eater. He put that idea in my head when he told me the story of how he rode across the Atlantic He referenced the old Desmond Tutu phrase, there is only one way to eat an elephant, a bite at a time. When something feels insurmountable, like changing careers or adjusting your whole way of life or even rowing across an ocean, take a bite, take a step, then do it again. So I'm sure you're wondering, did he actually complete all four challenges? Well, if you wanna know the answer, you're going to have to stick around to find out. Alan always wanted to learn how to fly. And while in college at the University of Birmingham, he got to. I was being trained as uh, as aircrew for the Royal Air Force. Actually, I wasn't tall enough to be a pilot. I missed out by about two millimeters. So I was a navigator. So if you, if you think sort of goose rather than maverick. Actually, uh, I flew a plane first before I, I drove a car, which is more a statement on how many times it took me to pass my driving test <laughs> rather than um, the fact I was uh, especially skilled as a, as a pilot. The first time he flew solo, he said he was scared, which makes complete sense. But then he bit into the elephant. And I thought, well, okay, I've done this you know, 20 times or someone sat next to me. Let's just do exactly the same thing. And it was uh, the sense I got when I, I did that and I landed. A, I was very relieved that I got down in one piece, but B, also it was... Uh, it was such a great milestone having really wanted to do that since I was a kid and, and you know, doing it at such a relatively young age. And um, it was a, one of those memories, I guess, I'll always, uh, I'll always treasure. And then in his final year of school, the Air Force suddenly cut recruitment on pilots and navigators. And they essentially said, look, we, we just haven't done all these medicals on you. You need to do another sort of round of, of tests on your eyesight. 
but you know what? It doesn't matter because actually we just don't need as many aircrew now. So sorry, you'll um, we we won't take you on. Could you describe like what it felt like when it was clear that that dream was not going to come to fruition? It was very very frustrating because um, I. Uh, I, I certainly had to make a decision there. So, well, do I want to go off into to become a civilian airline pilot, or do I want to go into the military? And um, I said, well, in the military, there's a sort of saying that you, if you're going to go in as an officer, then you, you're an officer first, and you sort of branch second. So, you first and foremost, you're an officer in the military. Second, it's sort of secondary whether you're a pilot or an engineer or you know a doctor, or whatever. So, I I went to the Royal Navy and said, I've, I've got an engineering degree, and can uh, I come and transfer across? And they they looked at my height, which is a shade in five foot seven, and they said, "Oh, you, would you be interested in um, working on submarines?" And not knowing any better, I said, "Well, yeah, that sounds interesting." So I sort of went in the space of those years at university from, I guess, going in th- planning to to fly around in three three axis in the sky to um, do the same thing underwater. So Alan went off to the Britannia Royal Naval College in Dartmouth. This place looks like the architectural love child of the Downton Abbey Mansion in Hogwarts. I highly recommend you Google it. Sort of 19th century to be like lots of sort of polished oak floors and um, you know, not really purpose built for the modern era. So, I mean, not that we had Wi-Fi when I was there, but I can imagine the Wi-Fi signal is awful because all the walls are about three foot thick of marble and granite. And basic training sounds straight out of a movie. Uh, lots of ironing uniform, lots of running around, um, not that much sleep and just exactly how you'd imagine sort of military basic training to be. And then Alan began his training in nuclear engineering. And it was complicated stuff, like lots of math and lots of chemistry. But he loved it. I had this great sense that, hey, I'm at the start of this amazing journey. You know, I plan to be flying, but now I'm I'm, I'm here, I'm doing this. It's really exciting with a good bunch of friends, all doing the same things, that really kind of close-knit uh, spirit of going through a, something of, a challenge we were facing we're going for it together and so it was a great sort of camaraderie and my life took a, a huge and very unwelcome turn basically one um one day it was my last day at sea actually i was really struggling to see the see the chart and i this was on the bridge during night and i thought well just need some glasses uh came off went went around for a period of leave and then um i had a couple of times almost crashed my car on the way back and i i had that sense of something was wrong and then I woke up one morning and I just couldn't read anymore. He went to an optician, but they couldn't explain it. And for weeks, he didn't have any answers. His vision just got progressively worse each day. And it wasn't the kind of thing he could just casually mention to one of his superiors to keep them in the loop. The way the military works is if there's any doubt that you know there's some issue, they'll put you to the side for six months and then try and figure it out. But it was getting harder and harder to keep his vision loss a secret. Uh, I couldn't read anything unless it was magnified. I couldn't, I couldn't see people's faces, which in the military was sort of incredibly difficult because I also couldn't see people's rank, ranks. Uh, so I'd be saluting wrong people or not saluting the station commands. And it was very, for it to happen as well in this situation, was very sort of strange because obviously by definition the military, everyone else is where well, everyone is, is fully fit and healthy if you want to see it that way. So he went from doctor to doctor until one had an answer. One doctor, he said, yep, uh, it looks like you've got what we call macular degeneration. And it's basically where the um, 
the, the, the retina, the, the rods and cones on the back of oh, this sort of die off. So you end up this big blind spot there. And I said, oh, so what's the cure? And he said, probably won't lose all your sight, but you're going to end up registered blind. And that's exactly what happened. I, I guess if there's one big sort of watershed moment in my life, clearly this was it. Because when I stepped out of the, the um, eye specialist, I'd gone in there thinking, well, something's kind of wrong, but I'm going to hope that they can fix it. And I came out and it took, took me a couple of minutes to realize, but I suddenly thought, actually, everything that I've prepared for has now gone because I, I've spent my whole life preparing for something I can no longer do. Now that he knew what the problem was and that it wasn't going away, it was time to tell his commanding officer. I said, look, I um, probably figured out already, but this, this is issue. He's obviously very sympathetic, but clearly I, I had to leave the military at that point. So it suddenly dawned on me it's going to be really difficult to get a job, sort of any job. It was a lot to lose so quickly. Because it wasn't just the practical things like his job, but the fun things as well. I kind of really like going up my bike. I like playing football. It's even even really small things that uh, just make day-to-day life really difficult. I couldn't put my toothpaste on a toothbrush properly, um, picking clothes out, so I just can't see if that color is matching that, or all these little things. And um, yeah, without stating the obvious, again, it was it was awful. It, it was like trying to sort of climb up some stairs made of like mist or something. You just couldn't, it didn't matter what you did, you couldn't kind of, there was nothing there to sort of grasp onto to, to sort of pull you out of this situation. The change was just so massive, so sudden, so out of his control. An elephant. I guess the silver lining was the, um, like any big organization, the bureaucracy takes a while to sort of churn you out the other end. Um, As it turned out, it it took me about a year to transfer me out. But I I thought, well, I've literally just started this deployment with nuclear reactor technology. And I was stubborn enough that I thought, well, I know I can't use this, but I've sort of started this now. And I don't want to wake up and sit in my cabin all day and just feel really sorry for myself. So I said, look, then can I just try and finish this course? And they said, well, how are you going to do that? I said, well, look, I'm going to, I'll find a way to do that. And I would be sat there with large printouts and I had this special magnifier. You know, luckily I've always had quite a good memory and it was just handy. By, by hook or by crook, I was able to sort of like bludgeon my way through various exams. And then um, on the day I left the Navy, that was the day I finished my um, of course, so I had this, at least had the satisfaction of leaving with um, this diploma in nuclear reactor technology, which, um, as it happens, has actually been really useful, not because I've ever used it, but because it, it sounds quite, quite impressive. <laughs> but even with that accomplishment under his belt, he still struggled to adjust to this new reality. I would have to consider every job, not on the basis really of whether I... Obviously, I, I try and think what I did want to do, but it was really, can I, can I at least, have I got some vague chance of doing this as a, as a sort of blind person? I remember seeing a movie once where they sort of referenced that blind people tend to be good at banks because they can, you know, the, the technology sort of allows that given the state of the job. And also it was like a sort of a life raft to someone like alone in the sea. And I thought, I'm going to jump on this because the alternative just looks really depressing. As of 2020, the UK unemployment rate for the general population was at 24%, while the unemployment rate for the blind and partially sighted community was at 73%. And I'm sure those numbers were comparable, if not higher, in the early 2000s when Alan was looking for a job. And as of 2004, the Department of Work and Pensions in the UK conducted a study that showed that 9 out of 10 employers viewed the blind community as, quote, difficult or impossible to employ. Now, these views are, of course, ableist and unfounded, but they do contextualize Alan's anxiety around finding a new job. You know, I want to be able to support myself and, and try and 
be as positive about this as possible. And alongside alongside sort of getting back into employment, the one thing I I, I committed to doing was I said, well, what what is it that makes me feel kind of good about myself and, and takes my mind off of this situation? And I said, well, you know, I, I sort of love the that endorphin rush of, of doing a physical challenge. And, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna set myself a series of goals that are gonna be so enormous that I just won't have time to you know, sit at home and and feel sorry myself and and all the, all those sort of dangerous feelings, I guess, of sort of bitterness and frustration. And that's that was the sort of the start of my recovery, I guess, that took me out of that sort of quagmire of apathy, which is really easy to get stuck in. So, in two thousand seven, with the assistance of a guide, Alan ran the grueling one hundred fifty one mile long marathon de Saab in the Sahara Desert. And with his guide navigating, Alan was able to just focus on finishing the race. We got we got through that. So had plenty of blisters on my feet. It was great to come over the finish line. I think at that point, this is two years after I left the navy, but sort of three years after I'd, I'd sort of really lost my sight. I felt my first sort of first big victory, I guess, that gave me a huge boost in confidence. And this is where the momentum kicks in. Coming off of the marathon, Alan saw his next major goal on the horizon. I'd put a proposal into HSBC to say, look. Um, it might sound a bit crazy, but I want to come with the first um, blind person to row across the Atlantic Ocean. And probably everyone who's listening is thinking, why on earth would you want to do that? In some ways, it's not at all surprising that Alan would take this on. He was in the Navy, after all. But this was a goal that he'd had since he was a kid, just lingering in the back of his mind. And in another life, it might have stayed there. But at this point, I thought, you know what? I suppose sort of proving to myself, and I think, I felt that by doing that, I just wanted to give myself the springboard for the rest of my life. In the middle of 2007, before the markets crashed, HSBC had launched an internal initiative to encourage employees to take on major challenges. So Alan submitted his proposal. Luckily, it's one of those times I'm really glad I did a maths-based degree because I was able to sort of loosely think of my feet in terms of various distances and costs that I was getting quizzed on. And then in a week later, said, look, we're going yeah, to fund this. So basically go away and start training. So whenever he wasn't working, Alan was training. And when he wasn't training, he was building the boat. This wasn't any ordinary rowboat. It had to be ocean ready. The challenge would be 3,000 miles from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean. That's the entire length of the United States. And the trip would be unsupported. Once you're out there, you're on your own. Their journey began on January 11th, 2008, and Alan was ready. Honestly, I don't think I've thought about my eyesight at all when I was doing that, because I just had something that was was focused and it was the probably while I was doing that it was the first time since I lost my sight I truly felt really fulfilled in the sense of having a really kind of clear goal and I, I, I wasn't measuring myself against my my peers as well yeah I mean how could you it's such a unique experience to have put yourself in the ocean is for me personally I will just share with you that it is something it's a source of a lot of fear for me but I, I do think that there's this sense of just this vastness. When you're in the middle of the ocean, it's just there is nothingness around you, right? It's really hard to explain because I'm not, I'm not completely blind, but I lost a huge portion of my vision. But I know what the world looks like. So I would appreciate this big panorama of emptiness and some really beautiful sunsets not because i can necessarily see them but i could see enough to fill in the gaps if that made sense but for me I, all i could see is this sort of emptiness and the, the different colors of 
there's a big lot of blue, which is the sky. There's a sort of dark bluey gray, which is the sea. And there's that sense of um, openness. But it was, uh, in some ways, really intoxicating in the same way as just that incredible feeling of, actually, the world isn't that small. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually really big, and I'm, I'm a very sort of tiny, tiny part of that. Alan reminded me of a statistic that more people have been to outer space than have rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. 553 to 300. And all I can imagine is being that tiny dot of life floating in the middle of expansive nothingness. The ocean and outer space are like flip sides of the same coin, seemingly boundless and untapped, conquered and feral. And when you're out there, you're completely isolated. But dangling in the back of your mind, is the knowledge that you're probably not alone. We, we'd row at night, and I was rowing one night, and I, I sensed rather than saw this huge shape next to me. I thought, what's that? I don't know. Inadvertently run us into a rock or something, and it, I heard a, a sort of whoosh, and it was a whale. But I, I could, out of my peripheral vision, I could see this big shape, and I, again, because I knew what the world looked like, that, okay, that's probably going to be a whale, and... Um, they, there was this sort of, uh, it, it sort of spout, I guess, uh, took some water, and then it, it sort of um, stayed there for a little bit, and then then went off. And I thought, well, that's incredible. I mean, I couldn't sort of, I couldn't buy that kind of experience. The journey wasn't easy sailing, so to speak. There was heavy rain, winds that went up to thirty-five miles per hour. Their bodies were covered in salt sores, and all of that muscle that they'd put on in training, it just seemed to melt away. But that's when it's time to eat the elephant. Okay, you've got a really big challenge. It's a, you can always chop it down into smaller parts. And, um, you know, literally that cliche about taking a day at a time, that's all we did. Because you, you saw on your GPS how many miles you had to go. And at the start, it's, you know, 3,000 or so. And even a few weeks in, you look at it, and it'll be some enormous figure. I had 2017. You think that's just too big to, and depressing to think about. So all we're going to focus on is, from the moment we get up, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna row, and we're just gonna sort of time box these things down into day by day. And I know that if I can just mentally just take it a day at a time, which again is a very overused phrase, but it's very true, then eventually all these days are gonna add up, and I'll get the other end. And then on their last night at sea, there was this major storm that just pushed them forward about seventeen miles. It was like a gift from above. So once they got there, all in all, it took them 85 days, three hours, and 20 minutes to get across. I'd set a Guinness World Record for the first blind person to row across the Atlantic, which, again, I think proves more that you can get a Guinness World Record for doing anything, so, so long as you're happy to do something that probably no one else in your, is going to do. We were also able to raise around, I guess in, in dollars, around $80,000 for a, a charity called Sense, which supports sort of deaf and blind people. I think one of the things that I I wanted to do this challenge for myself, but I thought, you know what, just while in the military, I just wanted to feel part of something bigger. It was more the, the awareness and help them and the press that we could get from it and being associated with that. So it wasn't for me to say, to show to the world, hey, I've done this, look at me. I really wanted this for myself. I could look into myself and say, you know what, Alan, you have the confidence, don't be embarrassed by who you are in terms of your sight loss, but also don't don't maybe kind of constrain your horizons by um, preemptively thinking that your your sight loss is going to be a barrier. And that obviously helped in terms of my career, 
for actually, you know what? If I've done that, I'm probably going to be able to figure out a way to do this particular role that maybe beforehand I'd have I'd have been a bit apprehensive about doing that. And that also led me to think, you know what, I'm going to go and do an MBA. So Alan started down the grad school process, going to info sessions and studying for the GMAT. It was like his nuclear engineering course all over again. Then I had to go for the same the same issue on my side again. I had to sort of speak to the GMAT people and say, can you find a special way to let me do the test? Because I'm, I'm obviously not going to be able to do it on a regular computer. I'm going to need some more time. I found myself at the testing center in London and they they hired someone in who was a um, lovely old lady who was basically there to to be my eyes. And I'd have to sort of, she'd read the questions out to me and I'd have then tell her and she'd sort of type in the response and um, which made it really difficult actually for some of the maths questions because she'd be trying to describe to me some of the sort of lesser use symbols and I'd be thinking, right, I think that's that. And between the two of us, we, we, we got it done. And then um, luckily my score popped out at the other end and it, it seemed to be in the ballpark for what was probably at least not hindered my application. And after interviewing at Haas, he flew out to the campus to kind of get a sense of the place. I knew as soon as I spent even just 10 minutes in the campus and was just there, it's like, yeah, this just feels right. And I thought, oh, how am I, how am I going to do this? And is this going to be a really lonely experience? Am I, I'm always going to be the odd one out, basically, and just always have to feel like I'm hassling, basically, to get some some assistance and get the adjustments I need. But that shows very quickly sort of realized, no, no, that's... Um, that's not going to be the case. So in 2009, Alan moved to the Bay Area to study at Haas. And even though he was a bit apprehensive, his peers extended themselves and made every possible effort to help him adjust. Honestly, I, I'd never felt at all that um, my sight was uh, something I, I needed to be worried about. Oh, except for crossing, clearly crossing, like the <laughs> crossing the busier roads around Berkeley. I'd, I'd always, I wouldn't jaywalk for that way. But I think when I had the opportunity to speak to alumni and, and staff of Berkeley in particular, I guess it was that sort of confidence without attitude. I just get that nice sense that I'm going to be, I'm going to be in a uh, part of a community where it's sort of genuinely self-supporting and, uh, and and sort of mutually helpful and i just thought yeah you know what this is this is sort of genuinely um the the values that sort of drive drive the school i got the sense i guess that this feels like home for the next two years coming out of his mba a lot had changed for alan he'd met the woman who would later become his wife they were preparing to move back to the uk and alan realized he wanted to move away from his operational role at hsbc and into something more strategic. With BT, so British Telecom, back and they had an MBA intake program where you'd essentially act as internal consultants and having that uh, having that opportunity to do something different and um, work with a large organization sort of move around. That's, um, I'd like a chance, I guess, to put a lot of what I've learned in, in practice into, um, uh, into that new role. As it happened during my time at, um, at Haas, uh, and in parallel with that that job search and the studies, I'd sort of been. Um, I thought, well, this is probably the, if there's any one time to try and see if we can get to Antarctica, this is probably it. I've said, look, I, I really want to try and put this Antarctica expedition together. I'd love to become the first blind person to ski from the coast to Antarctica to the South Pole. I've got no idea if we can do this, but maybe we could plan for it. And if 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 it's possible to do it as soon as we leave Hass, you know, would you be up for it? So we gathered a few friends, Andrew Jensen and Richard Smith. 
and with some support from Haas, they headed up towards the Arctic Circle in Nanavut Province, Canada, to prepare for the trip. My um, spring break in my final year, we went up, when everyone else was doing something more fun, like going to Las Vegas, we went up to a place called Ikaliwit, which is honestly the coldest place I've ever been in the world. The Arctic cold is much colder than Antarctic because it's it's a very sort of wet cold. We went up there for a week of cross-country skiing and, and sort of learning how to live and survive in Arctic conditions. Not your typical spring break destination, but a necessary one, especially because this wasn't going to be a vanity trip. Alan and his crew also wanted to do some good. This time, they are partnering with Sightsavers International and Guide Dogs for the Blind. Similar to, to the rare earth that will, you know, this is, uh, yes, I want to do this as an ambition, but let's try and make this a bit more meaningful. So we, we were supporting a couple of site-related charities and um, we flew down to southern Chile and then the three of us joined our, our guide and we headed down the coast to Antarctica to our start point. And from there, we, we set off skiing. And it wasn't easy. Not that anyone thinks it would be. But again, they ate the elephant. They skied upwards of 15 miles a day in harsh winds, plummeting temperatures, and whiteout storms, hauling all of their equipment on sleds attached to their waists. It took us a bit quicker than the rowing, but it was um, still I think, 36 days continuous sort of skiing across Antarctica and we got to the South Pole on the 3rd of January 2012. And then it was time for him to get back to his everyday life. But how can you go back to your life after an adventure like that? And then I was, um, you know, I think within, it's quite a strange experience really being from within, I think sort of three or four days of being at South Pole to sort of being back on the underground in, in London. The sort of vastness of emptiness going from that to one of the busiest tube stations in central London was really really strange experience sort of um, mentally in such a short pace of time. Back at British Telecom, Alan bounced around a few positions before finding his niche in business improvement and internal consulting. I found that although my site was a, a challenge in terms of it's hard for me to go and visually see a problem, I, I love taking on problems and, and saying, well, okay, how do we, um, you know, how do we find a new way of doing this? And actually, the one thing I did have from my, both from my sight loss and from doing the, these various challenges was, you know, there's always a way to overcome a problem. And actually, if you can be sort of tenacious enough and actually just be quite action orientated, so well, let's just make things happen. Let's get out and try new things. If it's going to fail, it's going to fail first. But let's let's not sort of sit around in, in endless meetings, I guess, and sort of plan for something that we, you know, we ultimately don't take action on. I think I took a lot of learnings away from Haas. Probably, I know it's a sort of cliche straight out of the prospectus, but it is, was really the learnings I had from my, my peers. But what I do remember is those discussions we had in class and seeing how people from different parts of the world, different industries, how they tackled issues, some of the challenges they face, and yeah, just having the confidence as well to think, you know, what, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm sure there's someone in the in my class that probably does and I think the sort of attitude that I was able to take from from my time at Haas that sort of confidence to not be apprehensive about taking on kind of problems or, or new roles has always been something I was very grateful to get from from that experience mm, yeah I I have um I use a saying a lot of the time when when I'm thinking about those kinds of situations which is you know how do we turn I don't know and help me learn and it sounds like that's something that has been a consistent takeaway. No, definitely. I think there's the, and I think that the next stage of that also means that if it's the going from I don't know to help me learn, and then it's that also, well, 
I, I can do that, or I'm, I, at least I know how to, how to try that. Whereas I think previously coming to Haas, I would have thought, oh, I haven't, I haven't studied that, or I have no experience in that. So I, I think sometimes we all kind of collectively forget that no one's born as a, a sort of tech entrepreneur. Or no, it sounds like a statement of the obvious, I guess, but it's reminding yourself there's obviously a path to get to that point because other people have, have, have gone down that. And it's just that sense that there's endless opportunity in the world. It's the fact that the more you can get out there and just create opportunities for yourself, the more chances you have of, of some of those leading some really amazing places. When you when you set yourself some really big goal, whatever that may be, professional or, or sort of personal, there's there's obviously no guarantee that you're going to be able to achieve that. But the one thing you can guarantee is you, you definitely won't do it if you if you don't at least take some steps in that direction. And since 2019, Alan's been using that mentality to help him balance his two startups, Icarus Originals and Blowleaf. I thought, well, you know what, I, I'm going to. Um, I want to have a crack at doing a startup business or something on my own. And possibly in a previous life, I wouldn't have necessarily gone down that route. But it's certainly after my experience of Haas. And I think just in general, the culture has obviously changed a lot. That even if I ultimately decide to step back into a corporate role, I think the, 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 that entrepreneurial experience and the learnings that have come from that view much more positive than they probably would be sort of 30 years ago, particularly in the, in the UK. And our idea was Icarus Originals. We would make jewelry but then developed into other sort of gift products which were all, all made from the item that they celebrated but my concept was effectively to take the idea of people value owning a, a sort of piece of history so for example we teamed up with a museum in the uk they look after lots of famous aircraft the idea was that we we would essentially melt down um original but surplus parts of these aircraft and we would cast those with our jewelers in the UK and get all nicely packaged and certified and they would be a unique gift. There was, I guess the logic as well was um, that with my site, you know, I'm not going to be there doing heavy coding, but this was something where it was a little bit different, but it is a physical product. I can sort of bring my engineering knowledge to that. And, um, and I guess by definition, it should never become obsolete because of the nature of what you're, you're doing. And then there's Blowleaf, his most recent endeavor. What we're trying to do is essentially collate lots of experience that will help people in the at the early stage in their careers. So everything on the practical side from here's here's what, what you need to do in an interview, here's, here's what a, a great CV looks like, here's how you should map your career out, and we balance that out as well with um, sort of mental resilience training. So actually saying, look, you don't just need the skills there, but here's some really inspirational stories about paths that people have gone down, Here's how, to, here's how to work in a really high pressure environment, whether it be that, uh, you know, a startup, you know, Wall Street or, or indeed in a, in a submarine. And then we, um, we're trying to sort of, I guess, model that on the sort of Netflix model, if you will, that we can give access to people to all this, this material and, and sort of live coaching for a, a very affordable fee. And then if we do our jobs right, obviously they, we can then help them into their career and obviously accelerate their career and ultimately should do a, a genuine benefit particularly as seems likely that we'll have a lot of people who coming out of the pandemic who um, would struggle in the early stage of their career, then hopefully this is something that can um, be a, a successful business, but uh, but also be a genuine benefit and that can only, only be a good thing. Absolutely. I have one, I have one last question. What, what is the status of this fourth adventure? All right. Yeah. 
So um, I had a uh, so I had a crack at swimming the channel in in late 2014. Um, I did it with a three others the idea was we do a relay first and then i'd come back the year afterwards and do do it on my own i'm not a natural swimmer swimming is one of those things i'm i really lousy technique in but in a way it's a great challenge because i've got to force myself to do this and it may sound crazy as well but i kind of i was always a little bit scared of the water when i can't see the bottom if that makes sense um which i know i know sounds nuts given i went into the navy and i went across the atlantic and everything but and i thought well Again, like learning from this whole experience, you know, face your fears and never as bad as you think and you're always going to come out the other end. So we got across to within about four miles of France and then fortunately the, um, the, the weather really sort of blew up in the channel and we just couldn't safely get across. But I, w- I would love to do that in the future, not least because my little brother went and did it as well. But I know how highly trained for that as well. So yeah, I'd love to have another crack at it. So it's a solid three and a half challenges completed. That's pretty good in my book but it looks like Alan might have a partner in his future adventures, someone to eat the elephants with. My, my daughter, who's, um, you know, she sees me running on the running machine. She sort of, she saw me running with one of my guys. I still do a lot of marathons and, and I enjoy running. She's like, oh, daddy, you know, uh, can I be a running person as well in the future? I said, yeah, of course. She goes, oh, can I run with you and like show you where to go? I said, yeah, absolutely. So I think at that point I said, you know what? As soon as she's 18, uh, assuming my joints are still working then to be able to be able to do like a, a marathon or a half marathon with with my daughter acting as my guide I think would be the most meaningful collective goal to achieve together and I think it would just put the seal I guess on that whole idea that yeah you know what I have to live with this challenge for the rest of my life on my side but I can look ahead to that and say yeah that would be a really positive thing to do and um, yeah I'd love to do it with my daughter and uh, often some people will say look would you rather have not lost your sight and had a different and I, I really struggle to answer that and sometimes I think yeah of course obviously I'd, I could have had my sight and I'd gone and had this completely different career and I'd love to be able to just do basic things like ride a bike and read a book again but in some ways I can honestly say I probably if I was offered that choice now I'd probably say you know what I'm going to stick with what I've done because having had that experience quite early in my life um, it was almost the being slightly hyperbolic, I guess the, the worst thing that could have happened happened. So at that point, you, a lot of the fear and apprehension sort of fell away. We thought, you know what, what do I have to worry about at this point? I think it did two really big things. One of which it made me actually, it, it made me really conscious of um, it made me really conscious of other people's experiences, I guess. Because beforehand, if you'd have asked me what uh, what do you know about blind people? I just said, well, it must be a really awful life because what can you, you struggle to do it? I had that very naive assessment effectively. And having gone through this, A, I realized that's probably not dissimilar to someone who's feels out of place maybe or feels apprehensive for a different reason. I can sort of empathize in a way that maybe I couldn't in the past. And the same with anyone who's just had any other sort of disability or shock to their life so it made me very conscious of that in a way that i wasn't previously and secondly i think this whole experience just showed me the the value of having that goal and purpose in life understanding the value of understand the value of time which often we often we don't and i certainly didn't before this happened and um yeah you get out there and hopefully in creating opportunities for yourself and aligning those to your goals if you can you can sort of 
make that a positive experience for those around you as well. And that can only, only be a good thing. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Hoss Podcast, The Crossroads Series. And a special thanks to Alan Locke for sharing his story with me. If you want to check out Alan's startups or support the various charities he's worked with over the years, all of that information will be linked below in the show notes. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to subscribe to One Hoss wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review us on iTunes. You can also check out more of our content on our website at haas.fm, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears!